Hi, everyone. I'm Avi Shinkin, founder of EndUser, and co-hosting with me is Stephen Mallet, founder of Inbound and some other companies. <laughs> some other things. Yes. Uh, and this is our new podcast called Straight Up, which is a podcast focused on human-centered method- methodologies and approaches, where we'll be hosting mostly Kiwis, but some, um, some international players as well, from different industries such as business and design, customer experience, marketing, sales, etc., Um, to tell us about the process of their life. So anywhere from where did they start from? How did they get to where they are now? What is their point of view? And how do they use it in their current um, job and their current company? And our first guest today is Elle Bell. Woo! Woo! Yeah. <laughs> Elle is a UK-born experience leader in creating digital products and services that deliver value to the customers and to businesses. She has been living in New Zealand for the past... couple of years working as a customer experience transformational specialist and uh, while starting her own startup on the side and um, so we're very excited to have Elle as our first guest thank you for having um, me yeah you're welcome and we'll just jump straight into it jump straight into it cool well should we let uh, the music go background from bits of chats that we have um, every time we pass each other so I do know it's an interesting story and I'm really excited to get into it let's begin the the journey at university where did you go and what did you decide to study uh, I studied at University College London um, which is it's in central London and it's um, a bit different because it's not a campus university so everything's kind of spread out over London mm. Um, has a really famous founder called Jeremy Bentham, who interestingly is preserved, literally his body is preserved in the university. Um, and he sits in cloisters in his kind of like, um, I suppose, an embalmed state, apart from his head, which was stolen um, oh by our rival university kings. No way. In, I can't remember when, probably 20 or 30 years ago. And the rumor is they used it to play football. Um, so so there's, his, a, there's a head lying in the university. No, case. the head was at some point returned, the actual head, the physical head was returned and that's in the basement of UCL, but um, it's locked down. It, so, <laughs> yeah. so to preserve his dignity, he has a, a fake head. Mm-hmm. Um, because of some of the philosophies he practiced, uh, Jeremy Bentham is still allowed to vote um, at the UCL board meeting and if there's a tie, he always votes yes. Fun facts about my university. That's That's (laughs) But um, I studied human sciences, which is quite an unusual course in the UK because um, it's actually multidisciplinary. So you have to do a mixture of both um, social sciences and um, like hard sciences like anatomy and physiology and biochemistry. Mm. And as part of the degree, you can basically choose from hundreds and hundreds of courses that fall under the umbrella of life sciences. Um, and then at the end, you have to combine um, both sides of human sciences into a, into a multidisciplinary dissertation. Um, so it's the kind of degree that you could do over and over again and mm. never really study the same thing. And there's about 30 of us that did it, and, and none of us did the same thing as part of that degree. That's amazing. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a fantastic degree. If you go into a university going, I have no idea what I want to do. Which I did, and especially well, that's what I was going to ask you, <laughs> what attracted you to specifically um, um, that degree? Yeah, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I was, um, I suppose biology was my best subject at school, 
Um, but I knew I didn't want to be a scientist as such because I'd had um, a very revealing work experience where I worked in a lab um, helping test antibiotic strains and cried for two weeks in the toilet thinking this is the worst thing I've ever done. <laughs> so <laughs> that was helpful because I realised yeah. I didn't want to be a scientist, but I was still fascinated by humans, human behaviour and um, this seemed like the best degree to combine both those interests. So I, I kind of ended up focusing most on um, things like behavioural ecology and human behaviour and anthropology. Um, and yeah, just found that kind of stuff really interesting. Cool. So that sounds very interesting. Um, but what is the actual work if you don't want to be a scientist? Um, what, what did you have in mind? Um, after you finished university? I really didn't. (laughs) Um, So I got to uh, my second year and my flatmate Nehal said to me, so what are you doing for an internship in summer? And I said, what do you mean? And she was like, well, if you don't do an internship, you don't get a job. (laughs) Oh no, (laughs) that sounds bad. Um, So I took myself off as a careers advisor at the university and said, I think I need to get an internship. And um, I sort of asked you a few questions and I said, have you considered management consultancy? And I said, no, what's that? Um, and she had a big, I remember vividly, she had a big poster behind her, which was an Accenture poster. And it had um, a poster that said, we helped Jelly Belly, which is a jelly bean company, increase their revenue by 300% by putting them online. I was like, well, I like jelly beans. <laughs> so, <laughs> my maybe, destiny was decided. Maybe I could work for a company that sells jelly beans. Um, and then I did a bit more research and found out that management consultancy isn't all about jelly beans. But um, it did appeal to me that you get to um, look at different aspects of technology and how they can kind of help people improve either the way they're working or what they're selling. And, and the, the idea that it was lots and lots of different things, again, a bit like my degree, you never really have to stick with the same thing, mm. also really appealed to me. So I got on their internship. and Was that I, at Accenture? That was at Accenture. Cool. Um, did that for eight weeks and then luckily they offered me um, a deferred place. So I was able to take two years off between university and starting mm. um, to do lots of different things that involve, well, I, I did a bit of traveling. I worked for my local county council. Uh, I worked as a chef on a boat. I worked as a security guard at Wimbledon. Wow. I just, oh, I was a volunteer dog walker. Um, okay, <laughs> what is the most weird story that you can tell us working um, in either of these, like a chef on a boat or a security? Gosh. Oh, weird story. Um, or funny or sad. Um, <laughs> let me think. Well, I learned, I suppose, um, working at the county council, well, at my local borough council, sorry, I used to answer the phones. And um, it was a real insight into human nature in that I think 90% of the phone calls were about bins and how much people care about their bins. <laughs> um, it's a big topic. It's a big topic of <laughs> discussion. People are really angry if their bin doesn't get emptied. Yeah. Um, so I answered a lot of questions about that. Um, Security card at Wimbledon was fascinating because um, you can't really tell this on the podcast, but I'm quite a, a slight five foot two person. <laughs> I don't necessarily come across as a security guard. Um, and there was four of us, and we were guarding the media center. Um, and it was really, it was a really good position to have because you could basically kind of meet all the tennis players. They came in for their press conferences, and and, and you got to watch the, the World Cup, which was on at the same time. But we had to develop these. Basically, we were standing around for most of the day, so we had to invent these really inventive 
and creative ways to pass the time. Yeah. So we invented loads of games like um, we would put three cups down and fill one with an inch of water and you had to walk up to it and just throw one at your face. <laughs> <laughs> Good way to pass the time. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, lots of lots of fun stuff. That's amazing. And when you went into the internship, did you have the intention to take two years off and to, to kind of discover what you wanted to do? Um, I, I've always loved travel and I think the idea of being able to like have the guarantee of a job mm. and then do lots of different things in those two years before kind of real life started really appealed. So yeah, I, I, I did a, I, I did a gap year before university and I did a couple of gap years after university. So yeah, I think I caught the bug for taking breaks, yeah. <laughs> long breaks traveling around. and traveling around and having different experiences. Yeah. Um, but then I, when I started with adventure, I, I've, I pretty much have been there since 2009 and and haven't really um, looked back since. Uh, there's been lots of interesting experiences part of that. And uh, yeah, it's been um, it's been a fantastically varied career, really. Yeah. Mm. So one thing I'm always curious about is when people stay at companies for a long time. Mm. What do you think that Accenture is doing really well that has made you want to stay for so long? Um, what um, Accenture, number one thing is the people. So you always get to work with interesting, very smart, um, and just really nice people. Um, so you, you develop friendships that last a lifetime. And you are kind of guaranteed to work with, with teams of people that um, are very focused, very hardworking, very creative, um, and just really good at what they do. And I can honestly say that there's been very few times in my career that I've really experienced sort of petty politics or that kind mm. of thing. Um, they just tend to hire really, really lovely people. That's awesome. Um, What's their secret? <laughs> <laughs> and you're saying how many people work at Accenture? I think it's about um, 440,000, four, four over 400,000 people globally. That's wow. incredible. That's insane. Yeah, it's a huge company. Um, and main, I think it's really amazing that they've managed to scale that culture. Yeah. Because, you know, I can pick up the phone and work with someone in China or work with someone um, in Japan and know that we'll hold the same values and that everyone will be helpful and nice to work with. And that's, that's I think, quite rare in a mm. company that size. Mm. And I think... I think it's near impossible for a company yeah. that size. And what I think they've done really well at is, and I've seen a huge shift in the company since I joined, um, and that's partly due to some of the acquisitions they've made, the main one being Fjord, which is, I think, one of the mm. best global design agencies, mm. is that they didn't subsume Fjord into, into being Accenture. Both companies have grown together, and mm. we now have shifted... Um, a lot of what we do around human-centered design. So that was brought in by companies like Fjord. And now, from a consulting perspective, it's now one of the first things that our new grads do, which is go and learn how to do design thinking and human-centered design techniques mm. and apply those methods to how we design new technology or new business processes. Um, and that's been really exciting to, to see that shift happen and, and to be part of that. And, and that's how I kind of developed my interest in human-centered design and and was able to do that for part of my career and learn from people at Fjord who are just some of the most wonderful, creative, talented designers in all fields. So, yeah, it's been really awesome to have that big pool of resources to learn from. That's wonderful. 
Um, just going back to, um, so you took your gap a couple of years, and now you are starting your full-time job at Accenture. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about your role when you started and, and how it varied and mm-hmm. what it grew into and how did you get experience to be, you know, I understand fewer uh, exposed Accenture to human-centered design. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be really interesting to know about that process and wh- what did that mean for Accenture? Yeah. Um, my first role at Accenture was um, I was a training analyst. So that meant that we were building and rolling out um, a website for Best Buy, the um, US consumer electronics yep. chain, and they were going to launch bestbuy.co.uk. And I was responsible for training people to use the systems that would run the website. So how to use the search engine, how to use the, um, uh, how to merchandise the site and how to market the site. Um, and I had no experience in that whatsoever, so I had to learn <laughs> how to do that and then learn how to teach people to do it and then um, hopefully get better at it. Um, and um, I did that for a, a year or so and then started to work more with actually updating the website and um, started to basically take the role of more of a business analyst and then a scrum master and start to learn about agile and um, how you do agile development. Um, Maybe give us a bit of a brief what that means because maybe some of the listeners don't sure. uh, mm. exactly know. Uh, they hear the, I'm sure that they know the, the terms, but what did that actually mean? Yeah, so Agile is basically um, a way of doing software development or technology development um, in an iterative way. So instead of um, doing it in a kind of staggered, okay, let's plan what we're going to do, let's design what we're going to do, let's build it, then let's test it, then let's release it. Agile tries to do all of that in a usually a fixed two-week period called a sprint. And so you design, build, test, design, build, test, you iterate it, you test it with customers, and then ideally you release it as soon as it's ready um, so that you can earn value from whatever features you've built um, rather than waiting for everything to be ready. And the idea yeah. is that the, you release frequently um, and you're able to learn and earn value from that stuff um, mm-hmm. earlier on. Um, but Agile is also this kind of a being Agile and it's doing Agile. So mm-hmm. doing Agile, which is following the, the methodology, which is around um, two-week cycles and certain roles and certain processes and meetings. But there's also being Agile, which is about um, just treating people as humans and uh, being open and collaborative and, and transparent and um, you know having conversations rather than intensive documentation or... Um, being experimental and testing hypotheses and uh, working together. So there's that side of it as well, which I really enjoyed. I love the distinction between the two because I feel like agile has become one of those terms that a lot of people throw around a lot, but not many people really know what they're saying when they say it. (laughs) Yeah. So I worked um, and built up my knowledge in agile development and then um, ended up kind of pursuing a path that was helping organisations actually implement agile development um, uh, to be able to build mobile sites or to be able to um, um, start updating their website more frequently um, and then also started looking at how you scale that. So um, ended up looking more at scaled Agile framework and how you get 9 or 10 or 11 Agile teams working together to the point at one of our clients where we had over 150 people working as kind of one cohesive team building a new product together. And I was sort of almost designing how those teams work together mm. and designing how we would train those teams to work together and how we could make 
there are different methodologies around um, scaled agile, agile work for that particular um, client. And then I started taking that and thinking about how you can use agile methodology to become much more customer centric, which is sort of how I've ended up full circle, trying to blend human centered design techniques and agile methodologies and working out how you can make that work end to end for a big organization so that you can really get them to focus back on hey, what is the customer? What are their needs? Have you spoken to them? Are we testing constantly? How do we get all of that? Um, really good customer insight, customer information, customer research kind of flowing through the product development cycle and being um, developed efficiently and sustainably by teams. Mm. So you've got the kind of human-centric eye on, okay, what is it developing? Who are our customers? And, you know, why do they need it? But then also the human-centric design element to who are our internal teams? How do we design ways of working that mean that they can... um, sustainably update this product and get stuff to market without getting burned out. Um, And I think that kind of takes me full circle back to my degree, which is looking at human behavior and how, you know, um, behavioral economics and that kind of thing and trying Mm. to see, um, see what and observe what what people want and then design things that hopefully make life a bit better. Mm. So I kind of felt like I ended up full circle back at, what I cared most about in my degree, which is learning more about humans. And yeah, human curious, the human centric, yeah. back into human curious. Yeah, so I suppose that's the, in a nutshell. Oh, very cool. Um, so you worked at the UK mm-hmm. in Accenture, and now you're in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about that transition and what prompted you to move to New Zealand. Yeah, um, and before that, because you volunteered for Kiwi Harvest, right? Was that part of the the two-year break in between? No, so there, w- there wasn't a break. I um, I moved directly with Accenture UK to help grow Accenture New Zealand. And um, one of the corporate citizenship days I did with Accenture New Zealand was with Kiwi Harvest. Mm. They do a, a thing called Cooking for a Cause, which is when you get a group of people from an, a big organisation um, and then you get a, a chef. Um, and then you get Kiwi Harvest to provide the food that's been rescued, so food that would otherwise go to landfill. Mm. And together you create um, a set of meals that get taken to a community who need it, um, or nations mm. who need it. And I just had the best day with with these guys. It kind of was a number of things came together that I love doing. So I love cooking. Um, mm. I really liked the model, as in like that's so efficient. Like you've got people who want to give their time through corporate volunteering you've got food that would have otherwise gone in the bin and you get to learn from chefs Mm. and all that food gets to go to people that wouldn't otherwise have access to a meal it's just such a great event so I um, uh, ended up speaking to the um, general manager in Auckland Maria um, and was super inspired by what she did and and how she was working and just said I'd love to get more involved and then I started uh, she, she said We'd love to have more people involved, but actually it works best if you can dedicate sustained time yeah. with us rather than coming in ad hoc because that can be quite difficult for small charities to manage. Mm. So I ended up um, negotiating with Accenture that I would um, do a kind of compressed work week. So I'd do my hours with Accenture and then I'd do a, a day with Kiwi Harvest. Oh, cool. Which I think, um, I did that for a little bit and then in the end that ended up being quite tiring. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I was really glad I did it because I think it's really important for people 
particularly when you are thinking about what gives you purpose in your job and what you're doing and what your skills can enable you to do with other organisations, is not everyone can quit their job and go work mm. for charity. Um, but you can always find time to do something that you care about on the side. And I think people should be brave enough to ask their jobs, like what kind of setup could we think of that could make this happen? So I found with Accenture, I was able to say, look, I really, really want to give some of the time and some of um, the things I've learned back. Mm -hmm. Um, How can can we make that happen? And let's talk about it. Um, Rather than just saying, oh, they'll they'll never say yes. Mm. Because there's so many different... Imagine the power of big corporates saying, okay, yeah, we can be creative Mm. with, with how we work so that the power of our people can help the charity sector. Um, And I think it works both ways. So certainly I think, hopefully I'm being helpful to Kiwi Harvest, but I learned so much from that experience too. And I took that back and was better at my job having worked with the charity. So one thing I learned is, especially with big corporates, you do get used to kind of having everything around you. Mm. You don't have to get that creative with limited resources. Yeah. Whereas as a charity, you really do. So you can't just expect everything to be there. You have to be a good problem solver. You have to be good at asking for things. You have to um, be good at um, making most of what you have. Um, and these are all really good skills mm. that you can take back to your corporate job. So I think it works both ways. And I'd love to see people who are interested in working with a charity just go and have a conversation saying how could I how could I do this how could how can this benefit both of us and I think this is a really good advice especially today where people you know they think they can't have another side gig Mm. you know if they work in a full-time job but actually companies are um, becoming more how do you say innovative and open to it and creative and that's okay that I mean it kind of shows um initiative that mm. you want to take over something else and you know like you said will make you better at your job mm. so actually that's really good advice that before you quit your job and you dedicate your entire time um, to something that you might not be sure that would work um to just go to your employers and, and yeah. ask them and say hey i'm thinking of taking some time to work with a charity or for a startup yeah, or, yeah. Uh, it's like i'm really passionate to... about yeah yeah mm. um so yeah, yeah. That's really good. And it must renew your passions as well. So rather than you know working at one place the whole time, mm-hmm. you then get to spice it up as well and just mm. have a really cool day. That's yeah. really, really different, which helps you bring oh, invest yeah. it at your work as well. It's, um, I remember one of the first things I did at Kiwi Harvest was um, uh, go and sort out their warehouse. So they had loads and loads of, at this time, they were getting loads of packaging from companies. Mm. Um, which were just starting to pile up. And I really like organising things into boxes. And I spent this amazing day just with a big smile on my face, just tidying up and putting things in boxes. <laughs> and they were like, oh, thank you so much. And I was like, no, thank you. That was incredible. And I just had this amazing day where I just got to tidy things up. And, and you do kind of go back into your other job refreshed and thinking, well, that, I did something really different then. I was active, I was moving around, I was using different skills to work out like, how should I organise like paper cups and plastic cups? And it's still interesting. It's fantastic. Very cool. Um, I thought I'll take you again a little back. <laughs> I know we keep going forward really quickly. Um, so, so you were working in the UK. You're moving to New Zealand. How did Accenture came to you and say, "Hey, can you please help us um, help you know the New Zealand Accenture um, launch?" Yeah. launch? Uh, how did you react? How did your family react? 
uh, you're coming to is it a new country that you've never visited before mm. um, you know tell us a little bit about that experience um, for you it was definitely a um, uh, I suppose a mutually beneficial opportunity so um, I had um, me and my husband had taken some time off to travel around New Zealand after we got married because my husband's brother uh, lives over here and our nieces are down in Wellington so we wanted to spend some time with them and I think at the end of that trip we thought we'd love to live in New Zealand for a bit or longer um, and <laughs> um, we just really liked the idea of doing something different and having a different lifestyle um, so I kind of used my network extension to see if there even was I didn't even know if there was an office in New Zealand mm. um, and turns out there was um, already they're already fair, fairly established in Wellington they've been in Auckland for a couple of years but they were looking to grow the particular industry group that I work with which is um, which was uh, retail consumer goods type clients so I said um, I'd love to come to New Zealand um, and they said when can we start <laughs> um, so it just worked really well it was just good timing um, and so you have some family in New Zealand yeah my um, my brother-in-law lives down in Wellington um, so yeah we, we part of the reason for moving here was to be closer to them but another part was we just wanted to have a new adventure somewhere else and we mm. the other part was we just we just loved New Zealand when we were here we were quite outdoorsy people mm. so we've been able to do much more hiking and cycling and all of that good stuff so it's been it's it cool. happened to me as well yeah. when I came here on holiday well my husband's Kiwi I came down here it wasn't even long it was two weeks and I'm like I'm gonna live here. <laughs> and then where were later, you? Where uh, were you when you when you had that? I'm gonna live here. I don't know. It was just the whole experience. It was the people. It was the the views. It was just the way of life. It's it, it was so attractive. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then I said, we're doing it, and we did. And, <laughs> here we are. And now. here we are now. <laughs> did you meet your husband here or somewhere? Else? No, I met him somewhere else. So yeah, I'm originally from Paris. And I lived in Israel for a long time. I met him in Israel. It was very different from New Zealand. It's very full-on, active life, not a lot of risk. And then I come to New Zealand and it's just beautifully calm and everybody's just so relaxed and chilled and, and I really wanted to experience that. And now when I go back, when I visit, I'm like, you people got to chill. <laughs> <laughs> you should come on holiday to New Zealand and learn how to chill. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and how did the work style differ from the UK to New Zealand as well? Um, yeah, I'd probably um, identify with some of what Abby's just said. I think in, um, I mean, particularly in London, you kind of get used to working really quite long hours. Mm -hmm. So like a typical day for me in London would be like get up at 5.30, cycle into the city, go and do a gym class. Then uh, my client, my last client, didn't really have a shower. So I'd like shower and then I'd have to go and dry my hair in a meeting room. <laughs> <laughs> then be at my desk by about 8.30 and then I'd probably do like meetings, 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 meetings. So about 5.30, 6 o'clock, but right, I can do some work now. Now I do some work and then I'd either go to like um, a networking event or go to the pub and I'd probably like roll in about nine ten o'clock and do wow. it all again Sounds the next like day. Did, yeah. um, and it was fun. Mm. It was really fun because we were working in a big team and there was lots going on. But and, and I usually work at the weekend as well, so I do you know two or three hours at the weekend just to keep things moving. And um, it was all interesting work and it was really challenging. 
Um, and then here, I think both me and my husband struggled a bit with the um, the, the the difference in uh, a lot of that was just kind of like self-perpetuating them. So you've got everyone's doing the same thing. So mm. like, okay, it's got to be done yesterday. Like, why isn't it? It's very, very quick. Mm. Whereas here, there's a lot more kind of like, well, you know, let's just do what has to be done and just go home. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to speak, you know, people do obviously work very hard in New Zealand, mm. but yeah. we definitely had to, um, like, it, it took us a while to adapt. Different energy. To, yeah, mm. different energy and mm. um, like differing pressures, I think, as well. Um, and yeah, just get to grips with Kiwi culture. And um, I think the biggest the biggest shift for me, and um, I, I really enjoyed this shift actually, was how everything here is so relationship-centered. Yeah. So... I think in London we just took for granted that a lot of I suppose the work we got was just you know it was just there there was lots and lots of work available and um, here if you want to get in or get to know someone or make something happen you have to go for coffee with them and mm. you have to find the right person to talk to and you have to get to know them and they have to trust you yeah um, and that what's great about that is also if you I've I found especially all of the research I've been doing for my startup, you reach out to people and say, can I take you for coffee? And everyone goes, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in London, people are like, no, no, I don't have, enough I time. have time. Yeah. And here, everyone's just so lovely and willing to have a chat and tell you their story and open up their kind of lives or their business to you mm. um, to come and chat. And I've really, really enjoyed that aspect of, of I suppose, learning to do that in, in New Zealand and not mm. kind of taking that for granted. Because I try to work, um, well, the first time I really experienced that, or the lack of that, was I tried to work in Switzerland mm. for two months. And I was like, just at the start of launching my freelancing career, had a few clients on board, and then I could get zero clients overseas. Because everyone's like, oh, you can we go out for a coffee? And I was like, oh, actually, in Switzerland at the moment, I'll be back in a few months. Like, oh, we'll just wait till you get back. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, <laughs> please. But yeah, it is very yeah. relationship-centric, right? Yeah, mm. very much so. So, as a customer experience transformational specialist, um, what Such advice? Job I know. <laughs> I just, I just, just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Just thinking how do I work on my title? Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, what advice would you give um, for companies who are struggling to focus on their customers? Well, not necessarily focus on them, but just find the time to to put that into the process. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, I think the first thing is go and talk to your customers. Um, what? <laughs> yeah, it sounds uh, revolutionary, but um, I'm always surprised at big companies how, um, particularly when they're building um, a new digital product or a service or um, something they're investing a lot of time and money into, that hasn't they haven't actually talked to the person that they're building it for. Um, so the first thing is go and find some customers and have mm. a conversation with them. And do it from, if possible, in their context um, and use a kind of more ethnographic perspective of, of how you do it. So whether that is going in, if, if you're a retailer, go and observe how people actually shop in your store. Mm-hmm. And then go and have um, a chat with, with customers from different areas, backgrounds, and understand um, you know, how your particular offering fits into their life, um, what their uh, problems are 
um, how they're finding the experience and start to just get that real primary research. Um, and then from that, you can start to understand, okay, well, what are the solutions we need to build that will enhance the experience that we're trying to deliver? What are some of the things that could be um, potentially be new revenue streams for us or could help us become more efficient in the way we deliver our services? And mm. um, second thing is don't just interview your customers, interview your staff as well. Mm-hmm. Because um, often the, the experience isn't just about what the customer experience is, it's about what your staff, particularly your frontline staff, so checkout mm. staff or people delivering services, it's about their experience. If they don't enjoy their job and they're not engaged by it, they're not going to give a good mm. experience to your customers. So um, I think it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a fundamental of service design that you kind of have the kind of stage, the front stage, then you have um, backstage, which it, so front stage is your customers and what they experience. Backstage is um, the people delivering the service to those customers on the front line, um, like a, a bank teller or a checkout person. Um, and then you have behind the scenes, which is all the people who are working to make that business a business. So it could be the marketing team, it could be the product development team. And you kind of have to take a, a slice to all of those people and talk to all of them to understand what is actually going on so you can build that map of the current state. Um, if you don't get all those perspectives, you're, you're potentially missing something quite vital. So yeah, start with those kind of three groups of players and it sounds exhausting and it can be really hard. Mm-hmm. It can be so, so hard, particularly in, in B2B organisations mm-hmm. who don't even think of their customers necessarily as, as human beings. They see them as a name because mm-hmm. it's like a business that's working with business. Um, but actually, you know, those, there's, they, a, human there's the a human at the end of it, yeah. and possibly teams of humans at the end of it that you need to go and talk to. And you can start to, you sometimes have to break down the kind of layers that have been put between you know, what you're doing and the customer, which I even get access to the customer. But um, we've, I mean, through my work with Fjord and through the work that I'm doing with my startup, if you ask politely and if you tell people why you're interviewing them, which is ultimately to try and make the experience you deliver better or the products better or the services better, um, they're usually pretty happy to chat. Mm. Um, Can you give them a little incentive as well? Um, I think it depends on the type of research you're doing. Right. So if you're, for, from a B2B perspective, it may not be appropriate to do that because that could be considered, mm. you know, it depends right. completely on what you're doing. And um, if you're doing something that is much more of a mass market product or service, um, or it's you know, something that lots of, like millions of people use, mm. you, yeah, you might, you might have to incentivize them. But um, it, it, it just depends on the context, really, and mm. what you're trying to learn. Um, and just being careful that incentivizing them doesn't incentivize them to say yes or no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, to, to certain things. Mm. Um, and yeah, the other really important thing is when you're interviewing people is not to go, hey, do you like what we're doing? Or do you think you'd like this? Because you don't want someone to say yes or no. Yeah. You want to know, you want to ask how and why questions. Mm. So open ended questions. So why do you shop with us? Um, and then keep going into the why. So, oh, mm. why is that important to you? Oh, if that wasn't there, how would that impact you? Hmm. Um, just to understand. Right, you can ask them, do you like this? Yeah. yeah. And then they say no, and then they see your face. Well, often <laughs> they just say yes. They just say yes. And especially Kiwis, I find. They're yeah. very nice because they don't. They really We're don't overly polite, so. User interviews with Kiwis so. are very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Are there any examples that you can share um, about human centered um, design and methodologies that you've done? 
through Accenture mm-hmm. and maybe some in New Zealand yeah. that you can share. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, I might not name the companies. Mm. Yes. But you won't tell. So some examples of human centered design work we've done um, with some of my clients. Um, I think one of my favorite stories of human centered design was with um, a client in the UK and um, the problem they were trying to solve was um, they're a DIY retailer and the way people are buying DIY stuff is changing. So previously you just go to a big box store, you go in, pick what you want, come out. But actually there's this whole new way to buy, which is driven by kind of like how you're inspired by the product in the first place. So maybe as a millennial buyer, you are browsing on Pinterest and you see um, something that's like, I want to redo my um, uh, my balcony and put some cool pot plants on it. And you're like, oh, great. I can, I can do that. Mm. I, I can do that. So you click on that and it says, do you want to buy this particular pot plant? Said, yeah, actually, that's in my price range. I'll buy that, maybe through Etsy, which is a, uh, a marketplace in the UK. Mm-hmm. And they've not stepped foot in that DIY store. Mm-hmm. So that new market of people aren't even reaching. You're not even reaching them because you're not actually meeting them where their journey starts, which mm. is online. And that where are they getting their inspiration that sounds from? sounds like my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they kind of realized that they had to go and go and find out like mm. what, how, how people start DIY projects and why they're motivated to do that and what the pain points are. So they did this huge piece of research and came up with um, some really interesting new ideas for how um, they could engage uh, these these types of customers um, through you know new services. Some some of which were digital, but some of which were you know blending digital and physical and lots of different things. Um, so one of the things, um, one of the ideas we were testing was a big challenge when you are doing a, a major DIY project is you have to measure up the room. Mm. So you often have to get the tape measure out and it's really frustrating and it takes up a lot of time. You have to, most people will write it down on a piece of paper and the paper gets screwed up and you go into the DIY store and you continue comparing it. Um, we were testing this idea that maybe you could use your phone to measure the room. So there's lots of technologies that now enable you to scan mm. things. So we had a few different prototypes and we wanted to see how people reacted to these prototypes. So we were in um, the, some rented office space at the time and we had recruited about 10 different customers to come and test these different prototypes. And we had to ask the owner of the building to rent us the disabled toilet for the testing. So we got people coming into the disabled toilet, scanning the disabled toilet, <laughs> observing how they were using the technology, you know, whether they could use it, whether mm. it was whether it would fit into their life. Um, but the uh, it, it really <laughs> struck me that the, the guys in the rented office space, like they charge us 80 quid for that disabled toilet <laughs> for the day. Maybe that's what started my idea yeah, about um, yeah. <laughs> renting no space. Out, I yeah. was like, you can rent a toilet for <laughs> £80, $160 a day um, to, you know, <laughs> management consultants will pay 80 quid to rent a downstairs <laughs> toilet. Um, but yeah, that was a great example of how we use human-centered design. And, and I think at that point, some, it was an easy way to rule out some of the prototypes because they were just inaccessible to people. Mm-hmm. You know, we thought it was a good idea at the time, but actually 
some of these things involve having specialist attachments on, on the phone to be able to get depth gauges. So I think in the end, as an MVP, we decided it was easier to do a finger sketch of a, of a room and oh, interesting. Um, enable that to sort of add measurements that at least you had a floor plan that was slightly better than that crumpled up piece of paper and at least we had an MVP. Yeah. Um, so that was one example of human-centered design in a UK client. And in a New Zealand client, um, this is um, a, a B2B example, but we went out to Southeast Asia and China to go and talk directly to their customers to understand what the experience is of buying products from, um, from this business. And we got this huge range of information and um, it was, it was just really interesting to see the, the different frustrations, particularly around some of the stuff they expect because they have it in their kind of normal uh, consumer life mm. that they expect from a B2B business, but the, the business is just used to doing things the way they're used to doing them. So it's sort of stuff like, well, I can go online and check years' worth of bank statements if I want to. Why can't I see my orders online? Yeah. It's that kind of stuff just to work. Mm. You know what really was important for us to then go and develop and and um, and ship out to customers. So that's been that's been really interesting, and it's been for me looking at it from a B two B perspective. Whereas my UK experience was all retailers, um, which were B two C. Like just seeing and having validated that human centered design techniques, you know, isn't just about developing the consumers. It can also be about improving. How a business works with another business because ultimately as i said before it's just humans working with humans mm -hmm. but you put this business to business label on it and suddenly it gets abstracted yeah and i people also just anthropomorphize businesses as well so you have this mm -hmm. like often in your head you have a feeling about a business that you work with and you often give it traits of a human but actually it's just a collection of humans. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it always fascinates me when I talk to people about, you know, I, um, through my career, I mentor people at Accenture and we have a, a great kind of counselling thing that we do with more junior people. And they'll sort of voice it, like, Accenture did this. And I was like, Accenture doesn't do anything. <laughs> Accenture is, is a brand. It's point. a collection of people. Yeah. Um, and often, um, and this is something I had to go through and learn painfully in my career, it's not being done to you. It's you saying yes to things. And uh, you have the ability to decide you know, what you do, what you say yes to, how you respond to things. Um, not just it's being done to me. You're not a passive person. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just think it's interesting how people often think of businesses with these personality traits. It's, not it's, it's it's to do with culture and the people that work there and yeah it ultimately comes, it's a set of interactions you have with people it's mm. not actually the business so after kiwi harvest you decided to go for another side gig which is your own stuff so i still do kiwi harvest um oh i didn't drop it yeah my diary is crazy okay how um, did accenture take so did you take um i ended up time. going part-time with part -time. Accenture. okay so yeah. i've been super lucky that um, that when I decided to sort of more formally pursue this um, startup, that they have been supportive in enabling me to do that job part time and then startup part time and then Kiwi Harvest when I can fit that in as well. So, mm. yeah, it, it's a really interesting and full life. So, I quite enjoy it. Yeah. Um, 
And take us down the startup route. Yes. So, yeah. So did you wake up one night in the middle of the night and you're like, this is the idea I really want to pursue? Like how did the idea kind of come um, into being? And then what made you so passionate about it that you wanted to actually commit, you know, a certain amount of time to it each week? I think it was less about the idea actually that really got me motivated. It was more um when I I suppose when I moved to New Zealand, um I uh didn't have any friends I didn't have a TV so <laughs> I had more time to think yeah. <laughs> um, and I was also not working as long hours mm. so I suddenly had all this time on my hands um, and I'm quite fatty so I did pick up a load of other hobbies so I was tried like furniture restoration and crocheting really? and all yeah. this stuff and then I was like no I probably do need to think about what it is I spend my time doing um, and ended up kind of just reflecting on okay well you've been on this journey with Accenture the next step is probably like managing director mm-hmm. um and I kind of thought I'm not sure if that's the challenge I want next I quite like to use all the skills I've learned in product development and human-centered design and and agile development and and put that to solving a problem that I really care about um and I've always quite so I thought okay well what what do I want to do? Like, it, does that mean like going down a path of entrepreneurship or does that mean like working for a, a small business? Mm. Or, I'm not sure. Um, so I ended up doing a course um, by Mum's Garage, which is run mm. by Nat really? Robinson. Fantastic. Um, yeah, and that's such a fantastic course for people. I was kind of back in that, I don't know what I want to do, but again, familiar, but scary. And she, she has this course that basically is like the pre-course. It's not about, um, you know, here's the 10 steps you do to build your startup, although it's just cover some stuff. It's more about exploring you mm. and the value you can give and, and the, exploring your experiences and what you might be able to do to end up where you want to be. So the, the course is called Ideas You Can Execute, and it really helps you explore your ideas, navigate and gravitate towards the one that you're going to be best at delivering, yeah. and then figuring out how you're going to do it. And that might be, um, yeah, I feel good that I want to take that into a kind of build up my own startup, or it might be that oh, this is a great side hustle. Mm. I'm, not, I'm not going to quit my day job because... It's never going to make me the money, but I'm really interested in it. Or it might be that, no, I'm not interested in it, and I, my day job's fine. So yeah. it, it just takes you through that process. Mm. And that was um, actually using a lot of human-centered design techniques to do that. So um, doing exercises about really think It's sort of like interviewing yourself <laughs> and, and asking <laughs> yourself, like, what did I enjoy as a child? Mm. Or, oh, wow. yeah, those kind of things that... What did you... Um, <laughs> I think um, I think I reflected that I really liked um, creating things, and that I was often playing role play games of like setting up mini businesses and stuff. Mm. So it kind of it kind of gives you a clue. But mm. I think also <laughs> when you're thinking through these things, it's kind of like um, you know in Harry Potter they have the um, the Sorting Hat. Yeah. And you already have an idea of which yeah. house you want yeah. to be in when you put on the Sorting Hat. It's kind of affirming what you've already been yeah. about. so I'm sure if um if I ended up like wanted to have like my own art, art 
artist's career or something like that. I was a child, I used to draw a lot. So, yeah, tell me that I can yeah. create businesses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, you kind of go through a, a bit of a design process on yourself and really reflect on your experiences and what your skills are and what problems you want to solve. And, 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 and a course really makes you think about, well, why those problems? And I kind of came up with um, the things I care about. I was putting into kind of three bubbles. So the first bubble was I really hate waste. So that was why I was attracted to Kiwi Harvest, because they are trying to reduce food waste, um, which is something I'm really, really passionate about. Um, but I also realized that a lot of what I do in um, organizations and as part of my consulting career is actually about improving productivity and productivity is ultimately about not wasting time and I think if there's one thing I hate more than anything it's wasting time mm. time is the most precious commodity so when you're I find you <laughs> <laughs> um, so a lot of agile development is about, is about not wasting time it's about best you know doing stuff in the sustainably shortest lead time to get value um, and a lot of um, human-centric design is about having empathy for what people want to do with their time and not wasting their time so many experiences are viewed negatively because people say that was a waste of my time yeah and um, so many things are frustrating because you're kept waiting for something that you shouldn't be waiting for like time like keeps coming back to that so mm. don't waste time this was one i reflect on the second was um that I really wanted to do something that involved um, humans and understanding humans and designing for humans and keeping that empathy and keep going back to that human behaviour that I studied before. Um, and then the third kind of bubble that I was interested in was, was space um, and how space can shape and curate experiences and communities. So I kind of, I'm, I've always been interested particularly when running workshops and going to events and things about how the space can either enable that or not enable it. And I was getting actually continually frustrated at Accenture and um, in other things I was trying to organise that when I was looking for a space for a workshop, I couldn't find it. Mm. And I knew it was there and I, I saw lots of space around me and it kind of came back to waste. I was like, there's so much space that's not being used. I can't access it. I could be doing some interesting stuff in this space and I can't get to it. So that's what kind of brought me to this idea of, well, there's so much space around us that could be being used by people to do interesting and amazing things together that involves creating art or creating communities or solving problems. If we could just access it more, wouldn't that have quite a big impact? Um, so that's where I was like, what if there was a way to book space around you and use it for meetings or events or parties or rehearsals or whatever? Like you can do that for Airbnb for um, you know in people's houses, yeah. but why can't you do it for businesses? Businesses and meeting space, mm. um, and that's and I kind of just got a bit obsessed with that problem. Um, it's like this is this is solvable, but no one seems to be doing it. There's a mm. few businesses globally that are, are, are doing it, but there were certainly no no one here in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, so it's like Airbnb for businesses or for meetings. Airbnb for, for meeting for space. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So. The ability to use space to, um, well, to take space we're in right now, this could be being used for a, a workshop or a, a product launch um, if people could access it. And mm. you as a space owner could be earning extra money from that. Also, you could be making connections with the people around you who might want to use it. So that might bring you more business. 
um, what happens in the space could end up being the next big idea or yeah. it could solve someone's problem. So it just feels like there's this big opportunity to mm. open up a sharing economy mm. around space. So that was what I kind of came out of this course that I did with was this desire to solve that problem. And the next thing that Nat does in the course is to help you to validate that, which is, again, human-centered design. Go to people. Go, go and speak to people. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I ended up having lots and lots of interview sessions with people that own space, people that book space, people that provide services to the events industry, and kind of validated that it wasn't just me, that there was something in it. And that's what kind of gave me the confidence to go to my job and say, look, I'm really interested in pursuing this. I think I've got an idea for something. I need more time. Can we agree that I'll work part-time and move into this exploring the startup? Um, and luckily I said yes. And then a few weeks later, I was at this decision point. Where I was like, well, I'm either going to have to make friends with someone that can build this because I'm not a developer. <laughs> um, and how do I do that? Because, you know, don't have many friends in New Zealand um, oh. yet, uh, yet. <laughs> um, or um, you know what other solutions are there and um, a couple of um, my friends at Accenture actually texted me on the same day saying oh I've just seen Shark Tank in Australia and there's some chaps that have built your idea oh, and at really? first I was like oh my god like it's not mm. unique anymore it's special anymore yeah. I kind of like put off looking at it and then um, it's funny how they do it yeah and then then it kind of clicked and I was like oh actually someone's already built it Mm. so that's really good that means there is definitely a problem to solve Mm -hmm. and if they built it like why don't I use that so I had a look into um what they built and I thought it was really really cool the experience was great um and I basically uh I didn't know how to contact them so I took the company name which is Space to Co and I saw that the founders' first names, and so I just made up their email address and thought I might get there. <laughs> Emailed them, Dan at space2go.com. Luckily, two of them were called Dan, so I thought, right, well, yeah, at least one of them might reply. And uh, actually, they replied within about it was like an hour saying, Yeah, let's talk. Um, so yeah, we ended up chatting, and I think from that first meeting, everyone kind of came over the conversation going, There's a real values alignment. Like even if we hadn't nec- they hadn't necessarily thought of going to New Zealand straight away, we kind of realised that we were all trying to solve the same problem for similar reasons, which yeah. is let's you know let's not waste space, let's enable communities to meet in spaces around them, um, and you know let's create local um, business development opportunities. You know your space is a way that you can create extra revenue to do what you want. So um, mm. um, after that meeting, we. Um, kind of thought, okay, well, let's see what it might be like to work together. And from then on, we've sort of collaborated and hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we'll be launching Space to Go in New Zealand. Really? Um, yeah. Well, that's fantastic because when you walked in, mm-hmm. I said there was three spare desks instantly. She was like, yep, well, that's a bit of wasted space. <laughs> you can be, <laughs> be monetizing that. You can be bringing more people in. Yeah. Um, so when you started getting interested in the space and after you've done the course, how long was it until you found... Because did you try going um, on your own first? Yeah, I did. For how long? Um, I suppose I I did the, the the fun stuff, so I kind of created a brand. Well, I got someone to help me create a brand because I'm not a graphics designer. Um, but did it, yeah, 
enjoyed that process and mm. um, started I think I started creating a WordPress site and I thought well an MVP could just be a much more extensive listing site so listing sites already exist and do a really really good job in New Zealand of helping people find space mm. but I thought well if you could have a listing site that had the stuff that people that had had the spaces that can't afford to be on a listing site and if you just made it free for people to access the information that could be an MVP and I sort of was struggling away with WordPress and then it was about that point that I found this other site and Mm -hmm. it was definitely a decision point and a a lot of the people that have mentored me along the process um, in particular Nat and um, some other people had said yeah but you kind of went into this because you wanted to do a startup like you thought you'd be a really good fit for doing a startup and you wanted to create something from scratch and grow it and like are you sure you want to like stop your idea and, and partner up with someone else I thought about it for a long time and I realised that I cared more about solving the problem than I did about creating something mm-hmm. um, because everyone I'd interviewed as part of that process of um, like establishing whether there really was a problem to be solved had said, oh, this is really painful for me. This mm. is something that I that wastes my time, mm-hmm. that, um, that's stopping me from achieving what I want to achieve. Because a lot, in particular, a lot of the people I was interviewing were meetup hosts or people that were running charities or people that were doing learning events. And a lot of them aren't earning any money from it and are doing it because they're so passionate mm. um, that they just want to spread what they're doing and grow the people around them or create these amazing experiences that people can enjoy. And I felt like those people. Like they need help to find the space to do that. Like they shouldn't be spending their time going back and forth, ringing up ten different venues, going, "Oh, how much is it?" Oh, no, that's yeah, expensive. like fighting to share the message. Yeah, when again, there's just so much space they could be using and collaborations that they could be building. So I kind of came back to, well, if there's something that already exists that's going to solve that problem for those people, mm. then I should partner up. Mm. And the other thing that had been weighing on my mind was, at this point, it was still kind of just me. Mm. Like, well, I can't do by myself like this is too big this isn't like I can you know some some startups you can go and test your idea at, you know if you're building a new product and let's say you want to sell a new brand of jam you can go and do that in your kitchen and then mm. take it to a market and test it and I was like I don't think I can do this by myself yeah I need a team of people and um so far well I think I've been super lucky that I kind of and an instant team yeah um, and they'd all you know a team that had all been doing it for three years but i think that's really big to be able to have an idea and step back and partner with someone else because i feel like there are so many businesses that mm. have that opportunity um even charities as well mm. there's like so many similar charities that are realistically fighting for the same cause but unfortunately now competing with the same yeah. amount of resources so just for the listeners i think that's a really important thing to um, be able to sometimes just step back and be like, look, do I want to launch this? And if you do, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Or do I care more about the, the greater vision? Mm. So yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. Mm. So for you, the largest struggle in building a start was the execute, like the development, <laughs> mm. the launching of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or working out how I was going to do that. Cause I knew you, you, I kind of had like a, a vision of what the experience might, might be. Mm-hmm. And I'd, you know, I'd gone to gone through the, um, you know, the discover and the, the define process mm-hmm. in 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 kind of a design thinking lens. So I'd done a lot of discovery. I'd interviewed a lot of people. 
I'd done a lot of kind of affinity mapping and worked out like what the major themes were. And I'd sort of got a general idea of what the features might be that solve those problems. Cool. And I'd done a task model and an experience map and was really starting to think about it. And I was like, this is great, but I can't build this. <laughs> this, is, this is wonderful in my head. Um, but yeah, I, I need to either find some someone to fund this so I can work with mm. a team of people that can build it, or I need to Do you try? Uh, Get it funded? No, I... I was really, um, I'm quite risk averse, mm. so um, I didn't want to take on any more risk than I needed to, and um, I also think when you're going, from what I'd learned about the process of going for funding, that would have sapped a lot of my time yeah. um, to, to convince all these people and to get the funding, and even then it might not have got me that much closer to what I wanted to do. Um, so I, I suppose again one of the one of the big pluses of partnering with a team that already exists was that I didn't I didn't have to go through that process mm. of doing that and I could kind of shortcut yep. to the solution, yeah. <laughs> um, massively shortcut in the de- design process as well, um, and sort of um, going into it with like okay well there's already a product and now I can kind of use my um, experience to like support those guys with what I've learned from all the interviews I've done and yeah. how that might um, influence the future product development roadmap. Mm. Um, and it's so awesome because I have, have so much amazing first-hand information on you know, what people go through when they're booking space, what people think about when they're owning space and how they're, you know, this, this big process they're going through of creating and curating event experiences. But I couldn't share it with anyone. Now I'm like, guys, I've got all this information. Like, oh, no. So they're so much reading. <laughs> so they're pretty open um, to your for your input. Yeah. So they're pretty open. They're not like, look, we're running this show. Mm-hmm. You're a partner. It's a big you just do what we tell you. They're pretty open um, for feedback and, you know, potentially yeah, they, it's changing been amazing. <laughs> it's been amazing to work with them um, because they've been, I mean, they didn't need to share as much as they have with me and they they didn't need to, well, they, they didn't need to partner with me, to be honest, because um, they've still got a lot of growth to do in Australia. Um, but, um, yeah, they've just been incredibly open to ideas and, um, um, yeah, I'm just super excited to be working with them, really. I, I went over to meet them in Perth a few weeks ago and it was just um, really lovely to... You know, we've talked a lot over the phone, but to meet people in person, yeah. it makes such a big difference, yeah. and you really get to know people quite rapidly. And I think we kind of um, all um, cemented that values alignment. Um, but also, it was the first time I've ever had like a business meeting in the sea. That was quite good. <laughs> they were like, "Let's all meet on the coast. Let's go for a swim." And oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Because they have lazy beaches, yeah. and it's like, "Hey, let's show you how we do things in Australia." That's so, fantastic. like, yeah, I met some of them for the first time in the sea. Which <laughs> I think that's, that's a good start to yeah. any relationship. Like meeting on a beach and then meeting in the sea. That's fantastic. <laughs> that's awesome. This section is called human-centered synth. It's about um, you, human-centered, focused person, designer, um, but 
what are those things that you know you shouldn't be doing that you're still doing? I think oh, the number one thing that I often just do and I know I shouldn't is I rely on email too much. I, I know email is an inefficient way to communicate with people. It's a closed system. It ends up causing more issues than it solves. It's often just a blame game. So you write me an email so you can say you've written it down. Mm. The best way is to ring someone up or meet someone face to face. But you just get stuck in, I get stuck in a trap of, oh, I'll just email them, I'll just email them. So I wish that mm. I didn't do that. So I know it's better to talk to people face to face, but you get stuck emailing people all the time. I tried to, there was a, a client account which I was leaving and I did manage to ban email. Really? Um, yeah. So I said, look, we all work in the same space. Why should we email each other? Uh, we've got things like Slack, we've got Jira, mm. um, we've mm. got meeting rooms. And it lasted for a little bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's It was actually really easy um, for the development teams, the agile scrum teams, because they're used, they, they work that way naturally anyway. Mm. So they're always talking to each other on Slack or communicating through those tools. And they were barely ever emailing each other because why would they? But it's really difficult to get senior management um, to not email each other. And then yeah. if you want to talk to them, you have to email them and you end up falling back into it. Yeah. But um, yeah, mm. I really wish I could find a way to email people less. Awesome. Well, great. So in human-centered design, um, we often empathize and try to think um, of our customers as our own and try to get into their shoes. So our question is, who would you like to live like for a day and why? Um, this one probably isn't possible. I'd love to be a dog for a day. <laughs> really My cousins will love that answer so much. I think, you, do you not often look at dogs and think, what is your life really like? Yeah. Like, they just seem so so chilled all the time. Like, you know, they just lie and they, yeah, they, they, they're very happy and contented beings. Mm-hmm. I'd love to, like, know what goes on in their heads. Do they think? I don't know. I don't know. I'd like to be a dog for a day. One of my cousin's dogs, like... <laughs> It's the he's got two dogs, two brothers, and one's like very energetic, and one's like very introverted. And I just like love so Cass is the energetic one, and there's like a ball in front of him, and he'll just sit there and he'll wait for like an hour, hoping someone can see him looking at the ball and like want to play with him. I just like love how focused and simple it's like and just a, like a meditation, isn't it? Yeah, it's like when you um I've um been to the border with um North Korea and South Korea. And they have their guards and they have to stand there and stare for hours mm. all day and they don't move. And it's, it's it's the same thing. It must be some sort of like dog meditation on the board. Yeah. It's like the Zen principle, yeah, beginner's yeah. mind, where like look, yeah. every time you look at something, you try to like look at it for the first time. It's just how yeah. do you, do you get that curiosity. If you had all the money in the world, mm. what would you choose to do? Oh, that's really tough. Um, be a dog for a day. Be a dog for a day. Um, <laughs> I always thought it would be fun to run a cheese toasty food truck called Bloody Brilliant. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That would be fun. You should do it. <laughs> Check, tell us, Accenture, you're taking another, yeah, another five hours off yeah, the day. Yeah, another, another a fourth profession. Mm. And, uh, on the weekends, I'll run a food truck called Bloody Brilliant. That's so good. Um, and it would do really filthy cheese toasties, like nothing healthy. It would just be like, 
cheese toasties that have cheese on the inside but also on the outside as well mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then it would yeah it wouldn't it wouldn't do anything like yeah fancy nothing fancy just proper cheese toasties so oh, good it's amazing Cool. On behalf of uh, Arby and I, thank you so much for taking thank your you time and running us through your your life experiences and everything like that. Um, I personally got a lot away from that. I mm. love the idea, especially when talking about human-centric design is not just talking about the customer, but also, like you said, the backstage and all, talking to the front line of staff that are talking to the customer and really understanding what drivers they have. And like you said, if they're not passionate about what they're doing, it's really hard for them to exude that onto the customers as well. Um, I also loved how you said that businesses aren't people. Um, I run a B2B company, so it's very easy for me to also think that businesses are people. Um, but it's, yeah, run by the cult from the group of people that make up that company. Um, so I got a lot from it. Avi, any takeaways from me? You took the possibilities of doing side work and side gigs that you are passionate about that give you purpose, uh, but not having to quit your full-time job that you also loved and going and finding ways to make it work, mm. to make it work together still having purpose, still loving your job, still working with the people you love, but doing something extra. Yeah. Um, and taking a step back from a macro perspective as well, because I feel like a lot of people that do have ideas and passions that they want to solve, they tend to want to start an idea for the sake of starting the idea, that kind of stuff. But taking the step back and really understanding what drives you as a human and you as a person, and then building maybe a side project or a main project from that, so I think starting things is very hard and the more passion you have behind it, the easier it becomes, especially when you can form partnerships like that. So, also, yeah. it's amazing to me that um, you took a back step on your idea. You know, people tend to be like, my precious, mm-hmm. you know, this is mine. Don't touch it. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to no, share don't information. Look at it. <laughs> don't look at it. This is not happening in Australia, but you really thought about the problem and really empathize with the people who need this to be solved and just decided to partner with these amazing guys, they sound amazing. Yeah. And we're really looking forward to the launch in the yeah. next couple of weeks. Yes, yeah, watch out for Space to Bring. Mm, we're going to put a link um, to the website down yep. there so that people can use So Airbnb for business spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've got two places to list immediately, so <laughs> hopefully <laughs> I can be one of your first customers. Yeah, awesome. Well, yeah, get in touch if people have spaces or are looking for spaces. Happy to help. Definitely. Mm. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank and you. um, we'll put yeah all the links to you below. Thank you. Cheers.